Well, good morning again. Two weeks ago, we started a brand new series called Holy War. And one of the things that we've seen already in this series is that there's not a one-size-fits-all response to every individual situation that we're going to find ourselves in. So let me play the role of Captain Obvious for just a moment. Um, If you are a police officer and you're in a St. Cloud mall and there's some person and they've got some of our St. Cloud folks are here. Um, you, they've got a knife and they're running and they're chasing a pregnant woman yelling things about Allah. That's going to merit one response. But again, Captain Obvious speaking here. If you have a Muslim coworker who has sincere questions about Christianity, that's going to merit an entirely different response. If we're going to be jumping right in because we've got a lot to cover today. I'd encourage you to take out your notes and let's start right here with this as we dive into today's teaching. Different situations call for different responses. Isn't that true? Just in life, this is true. This is <laughs> Dr. Cloud. Some of you have got some Cloud fans in here. I mean, this is just, this is just life 101. You, you want to assess when you're, when you're trying to respond to somebody, are you dealing with a truth seeker? Because that's going to look one way. If you're dealing with someone else, they don't care about the truth. They have everything already figured out. That, that's a very different response. And then there's number three, and we, we touched on this last week. If you're dealing with people who have evil intent, there's a whole different set of responses that fit that category. Well, I put these before you this morning because we're going to focus on this category number one today. I, I, I was digging into this text, and we, we had assigned the text before we knew exactly what we were going to say about it. I I do that every once in a while. This is a really challenging text that we're going to dive into today. And I'm like, what are we going to do with this one? Because I'd never pressed into it before. As I pressed into it, I thought, you know what? It has a whole lot to say about dealing with a sincere truth seeker. Uh, It has a lot to say about how we could help um, a person who is on a journey of faith, who is a Muslim folk or or whatever, and they're sincerely seeking the truth about God and Islam, and Christianity. There's some things we can learn from this passage, especially when we put it in context, um, that I'd like us to look at today. So before we dive into our text, which is going to be found in the book of Joshua, I want you to re- I would encourage you to write down one more thing in your notes, and that's this. Disregarding difficult passages in the Bible can be what? Dangerous. It's so easy to disregard them, to go, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm just going to not even deal with it. I'll almost pretend like it's not in the Bible. That can be dangerous. It can be dangerous. Oh, come on, says Brother Rick. Yeah, Rick, it can be dangerous. Because as it, as personally, it can be dangerous because there could be a very important truth that's uncomfortable but very true that, that we need to press into. And there's a whole lot of very chilling passages in the Bible where someone thought they were right with God only for it to be revealed when it was too late that they weren't. And so there's sometimes these passages we need to press into because there's some very important hard teaching there for us. But this is also true for us as we're in relationship with other folks and we're trying to to express and represent Christianity well. Because if we disregard certain hard teachings, we could very well be misrepresenting God. And I think the text we're going to look at today, as difficult as it is, if we ignore it, if we disregard it, if we minimize it, we may be negatively affecting our witness, as crazy as that may sound when you hear the text itself. So with that, let's take a look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. This is a passage that has a lot to say about holiness, about sin and holiness. And let me just say this before we actually get into the text. 
one of the things as I've been having conversations, as I've been reading, one of the things that I've seen, despite um, Islam's great diversity, one of the things I've seen that's pretty common ground is one of the things that keeps a lot of Muslims at arm's length from Christians is how we appear to just disregard the Bible and holy living. How, how we just appear to say one thing with our mouths but live something very different with our lives. So sin and holiness is a big deal to a lot of Muslims and most Muslims. And they, they question how can we be sincere about our faith if we don't take these things serious too. So with all that, um, let's look at Joshua 7.1. If you don't have a Bible too, by the way, we'd love to give you one free today. Each and every week we keep them at the table. There, we'd love for you to take one as a gift to you. All right. Oh, man, there's all this stuff before we get into the text. Let me just frame this. Sorry, I'm, I'm giving all this lead in without just uh, having led in before saying I'm going to give the lead in. All right, here we go. <clears throat> Quick overview of what we're going to look at here. This passage comes immediately after the battle of Jericho. And that's really important to know that. Before the children of Israel attacked the city, God gave them explicit instructions. This is so important. Before they attacked the city... Right before they attacked the city, Joshua gave them explicit instructions to not keep any gold or any silver or anything else that was devoted to God. God was very clear on this. And he gave the people of the camp through, Mo, through Joshua this specific warning. He said, if you take, if you keep any of the things that are devoted to the Lord, if you keep them for yourself, you will make the camp of Israel, remember that, that phrase, you will make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and you will heap trouble upon it. Well, in the aftermath of the battle, we're going to see that there was a man named Achan and he saw some shiny things that were devoted to God and he decided to keep them for himself. He secretly brought the devoted things home. He hid the devoted things in his tent. And just as God warned, we're going to see that his sin affected everybody else. When his sin was revealed, he was executed by stoning. And the account ends with Achan buried under a heap of stones in a place that became known as the Valley of Achor, which means trouble. Now, we don't have time to do a full all-out Bible study on this. We'll do the best we can with the time we have to dig into this passage. Joshua chapter 7. And then what we'll do is we'll put it into the broader context of Scripture and we'll see what we can learn about witnessing in a positive way through a difficult passage like this. Here we go. Joshua 7 verse 1 says, But the people of Israel broke faith. In regard to the devoted things. For Achan of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now I want you to remember that phrase devoted things. Because we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. What I'd like to point out right here though before we move on. Is that Achan broke faith. Achan broke faith. And it affected the rest of the camp. Just keep that in mind, because that is one of the things that we forget in the individualized Western society, right? Where it's about us, 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 selfie nation, right? We, we don't often think our actions affect other people. This is true with sin. It is still true today. All right, so picking up here with verse 2. Joshua, now, after the battle, after the battle of Jericho, uh, Joshua sent men to Ai and to spy out this other little city. And the people returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up. We don't need all those people. It's a little hit down. We got this. You know, you don't have to send all the people to go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack. 
for they're few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people. And they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them and struck them down the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. You know, the battle previous to this, the one that we looked at last week, God brought the walls down. This was a fortified big city that God just brought the walls down. And here's this little hit down. We got this. And the army gets routed. And so what happens? Picking up verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes. He fell to the earth. He put his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. Jumping ahead to verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They've transgressed my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. Now, I noticed some wordplay in English. I didn't have time this week to see if the wordplay is also there in Hebrew or Greek. But this, the wordplay really jumped out at me. Joshua is on his face before the Lord. And what did God say to him? He said, get up. God says, I warned you about this. You broke faith. You took the devoted things as your own. As a result, the camp of Israel cannot stand. You cannot stand, so get up. That's the wordplay I saw there. As an action-oriented person, I love that. I love that. Get up. There will be times in our lives where we're just going to be tempted to just remain on our knees or remain on our face. And there's going to be times where God says, get up. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Repentance. Repentance. True, sincere repentance is not simply saying you're sorry. True repentance is saying you're sorry and. And turning towards God and doing the right thing and seeking help, seeking forgiveness, seeking whatever needs to be sought. All right, let me jump directly to an application here. I mentioned earlier that one of the things that keeps many sincere God-seeking Muslims at arm's length from Christians is how casual most of us are when it comes to holiness and sin. I read one account of this Muslim guy and he was invited to church and he, he just he politely said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't sit, sit down in that pew. And after the service, they're like, why weren't you able to sit down in the pew? He said, well, you've got Bibles underneath the seats. He was a Muslim. And he had that kind of reverence for the Bible. The Bible isn't something you sit over. Wow. You know, wow. Wow, this idea of sin and holiness. When, when Western Christians or any Christians, when we just consistently break faith, when we just break faith, when we blatantly disregard things that the Bible says don't disregard, when we, when we do that, our witnessing cannot stand up to any sincere skeptic who can just say, you're saying this, but you're doing this, right? Does that make, our faith can't stand. There's times you have to get up and do the right thing. Well, Western minds, we can easily go where Achan went in his situation because when the city was sacked, he found this great cloak with the Nordstrom's tag still attached. It was this beautiful thing. He found five pounds of silver. He found a pound and a half of gold. And several of my sources said this would have been a life 
times worth of wages. So imagine you're aching. You're going, okay, this doesn't make any sense. We're supposed to burn everything that can be burned. I'm supposed to burn this robe? What good is that? The gold? The gold is not going to go to fund anything. The gold is going to go sit in a temple treasury where it can't be touched. Are you telling me that God would rather see this thing get burned, would rather see gold sitting in a, and silver sitting in storage than blessing my family? Can you see how you can go there very easily? But this was never about God getting richer. Who does everything belong to? God, it was his to begin with. Everything belongs to God. And that was the point. The land that these people were about to conquer, it didn't belong to the Canaanites. It didn't belong to the Hebrews. Who did it belong to? It belonged to God. It was God's victory. One of my sources said this. Um, I came across this quote. Perhaps it will be seen now why Achan's sin was viewed with such severity. He had done more than take several battle mementos. He had robbed God of items that were specifically indicated that he was the Lord of the whole earth. God's people are to be more than conquerors, more than conquerors. This isn't about conquest of land and plundering and all that kind of thing. The children of Israel were to be a light to the nations. They were to shine as a people who were fully devoted and not devoted to plunder and not devoted to immorality and not devoted to doing what seemed right in their own eyes, but radically. It's interesting that Jason prayed that prayer about radically trusting you. They were to be radically devoted to God, even when it didn't make sense. Well, God says to Joshua, this kind of behavior it goes against everything that, we've, that we're about. And so I cannot tolerate this kind of sin in the camp. Call the people together because we're going to call the sinner out. So, picking up with verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and he brought all of Israel near tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was taken. And then he brought near the clans of Judah, the smaller groupings within Judah. He brought near the household man by man and Achan of the tribe of Judah was taken. So imagine this, you're Achan, right? Here come thousands upon thousands of people assembling, right, in public. Joshua says, tribe of Judah, step forward. All the people of the tribe of Judah, step forward. Sub-tribe of Judah, step forward. Step forward. Achan's starting to sweat a little bit. There's another subcategory from that category. They come forward until just Achan is left. Three quick things to note before we move on. First of all, I took note that Achan was caught before he confessed. That's not the order you want. If you are engaging in things that you're trying to keep secret, it's better to confess before you're caught. And you know what? God loves you enough to let you get caught. Find your time. Pick your time to confess. Okay? That was one thing. Another thing I'd like to point out here before we move on. The author, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes multiple times that Achan was from what tribe? Tribe of Judah. File that in the back of your head. The tribe of Judah. For some reason, Judah, Judah, Judah just keeps showing up. Tribe of Judah. Lastly, third thing I want to emphasize before we move on. Achan is called out, he confesses, and everyone is instructed to stone him. Remember that also. Everyone was to stone him. 
All right, well, one of the reasons it's tempting to disregard a passage like this is it does not seem, at least on the surface, it does not seem to be in line with the gospel of grace that we see in the New Testament. But here's something that jumped out at me this week. And there's a place to write this in your notes. The scripture paints a consistent portrait of sin. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Even though it's uncomfortable to say this, it is an amen thing. The, the scripture is consistent when it comes to sin. Sin has a significant relation, uh, impact on a relationship with God. Sin has a significant impact on a relationship with others. And there are explicit warnings, Old Testament and New, regarding deliberate and secret sin. And again, I want you to fact check me on this. So I put some scriptures in your, in your notes. I encourage you to look these up so that you can see this is not me trying to take something out of context or any of that kind of thing. Take a look at these. Um, Here's some quick high-level summaries of these passages. Here's what you will see when you read them and read them in context. The authors of Scripture, through the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, speak with one voice when it comes to the significance of sin and the importance of holiness. In the Matthew passage that's in your notes, we have a quote from Jesus himself. And Jesus tells us that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he goes this far. He says, if your righteousness doesn't surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. Uh, The Acts passage, we read an account that is eerily similar to this one, only it seems like what they did wasn't as big of a deal, at least in my eyes. You've got a couple. They deceive the community. God strikes them dead. The Romans passage, you've got the Apostle Paul reminding us that the wages of sin is death. And those who have been forgiven, Paul says we should walk in what he calls newness of life. In the 1 Corinthians passage, Paul provides some harsh instructions for a church that was permitting sin in the camp. In the Hebrews passage, this one has some of the strongest warnings in the entire Bible for those who continue to engage in deliberate sin. That Hebrews 10 passage is absolutely chilling. And then in 1 Peter, the passage I give you, it reaffirms something that God said in the Old Testament. Peter says what God had said all along, be holy because I am holy. I'm so glad so many of you know these passages. Why is it dangerous to minimize a passage like Joshua 7? Because passages like Joshua 7 remind us that sin is a really, 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 really big deal. Sin, of, man, sin affects our relationship with God. Sin affects our relationship with one another. When we sin, we're rebelling against the ways of our perfect heavenly father. And the scriptures teach us that there is nothing that we can do to overcome that on our own. There's nothing in our own strength, nothing in our own merit that we can do to overcome that. And this is one of the ways that Christianity differs from Islam. One of the significant ways. Again, there's a tremendous amount of diversity among Muslims in a number of areas, but one of the common themes that I've seen is how many Muslims approach sin. I saw the word scales come up over and over and over again. Many of Muslims see sin and holiness kind of like good works, bad works, kind of like scales. One of the books that we recommend is um, Christian Muslim Friend. And in this, the author, who's a Christian guy, was talking to a Muslim holy man. And the Christian author says to the holy man, he says, I want to know my eternal destiny. Can you please tell me the true way to heaven? 
the Christian asks the Muslim holy man this. And here is how the Muslim holy man replied. He says there are balance scales. The five pillars of Islam go on the good deeds side of the scales. The wrong we do goes on the opposite side of the scales. No one knows which side is the heaviest, the good deeds or the wrong deeds. Even I do not know. Is that what Christianity teaches? No, this is a very different teaching. It teaches if we got sin on this side of the scale, you can jump up and down, you can have an elephant on your shoulder and it's not even going to budge the thing, right? On this side. We cannot in our own... The wages of sin is... That, that's the price. It, it's not good deeds, bad deeds. That's what Christianity teaches. Sin is that significant. So what do you do with that? You smoke others out and stone them if they've got sin to keep the sin out of the camp? Is that what you do? You attempt to hide your own sin so no one finds out and stones you? Kind of like a person passes gas in an elevator. It wasn't me. It must have been, you know, so-and-so. You know, if we, if we stop... She goes, why do you do that? She says, why do you do, why do, you do that? Um, if we stop here, if we stop here, and, and could we add more passages that the Bible has about the series of sin? Yeah, we could. If we kept piling on and piling on and we just stopped there, you could go, I'm done. Because I, I'm a sinner. The scripture says, all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. So if we just stop on these verses, we're like, I'm aching. I deserve this. And if it's happening in our community, it's affecting us. So we got to call it out and we have to attack or or what, you know, what do you do with that? What you do with that is you read all the scripture and you'll read of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? It doesn't just talk about the series of sin in the Bible. It talks about the goodness and grace of, of God, and it helps us understand why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. Does anyone remember where Achan was from? What was his tribe? Judah. You know anyone else who came from the tribe of Judah in the fullness of time? Centuries later, another man arose from the tribe of Judah, and this man could face his family line all the way back to the battle of Jericho too, to a woman named Rahab. Think about the irony here. For those of you who were here last week, Achan was a Hebrew who broke faith when it came to things that were devoted to destruction and he received a death sentence. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute living in Jericho and she put her faith in God and she was saved from destruction. And in the fullness of time, a relative of Rahab's arose from the tribe of Judah. And Jesus of Nazareth can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way, just as we are. But he was without sin. We reprinted an excerpt that was too good to only print once in your notes. And I would encourage if you didn't read it last week and you were here to read it, if you weren't here last week, we printed it for you. I would encourage you to take a look at that. It's an excerpt by, by a guy named Tim Keller who, who says some beautiful words about the significance of Jesus of Nazareth and what he did on the cross on our behalf. And because he did that, when a woman was brought before Jesus, 
a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery and men picked up stones and they were about to cast those stones at this woman. What did Jesus say to those men? He said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And he could say that not because Jesus saw sin one way, his father saw sin another way. No, they had the same view of sin. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, because he was the one, the one without sin, that would soon be taken outside the camp and killed, because of his sacrifice, we could be forgiven. And that's why I want to encourage you to write this good news down in your, in your notes. Some of you who maybe come from a Lutheran heritage or some of these other heritage where you had liturgy, maybe you already filled these blanks in. The God of the Bible is faithful and just to forgive those who repent of their sin. This isn't schizophrenia or something on the part of God. This, this is consistent. God's forgiveness is faithful and it is just. God is just because his righteous anger righteously burns against sin. He can't just turn his head towards it. And at the same time, God is faithful. He is a loving father who made a way to cleanse the sin in the camp without stoning us. As I was working through this message, I was reminded of something. That's where this talk point came from that we just read down. I was reminded of something that we used to say in church. We used to say so much so that I memorized it without trying to memorize it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you grow up in a Lutheran church? Or a church where you used to say that or you just memorize that verse? Just know a lot of scripture. And there you go. That's my punchline. This is it. A lot of scripture. Little Cross of Christ Lutheran in the cornfields outside of Welsh, Minnesota. They were on to something when they had to say these things. At the time, I'm like, why do we say these things all the time? It feels like we're just going through the motions. We were saying those things because they were getting scripture in our hearts and our minds. And one of the things we're going to be committed to as a church going forward, we're going to figure out how do, we, how do we do more of that with our kids? How do we do more of that with our teens? How do we do more of that with our adults? where we're learning these key scriptures. Because you bet, that's right out of scripture. I'm so glad this one you memorized. Here it is. 1 John 1, 8 through 9 says, and please read this with me. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Scriptures like this do not minimize sin, do they? No. But they speak to an amazing grace and just how significant the cross of Jesus Christ was. Does anyone know what Jesus said to that woman as everyone else dropped their stones and walked away? He said, go and sin no more. Jesus doesn't minimize sin. It's just that he paid that costly, costly price on our behalf. So that those who confess our sins, he can be faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The biblical authors do not minimize sin or holiness. What they do emphasize is that there is no longer any need for us to cast stones at one another. Can I get an amen? They also emphasize there is no need to hide your sin any longer. Can I get an amen? Do you have to find safe people to share that with? Absolutely. 
because unfortunately there's people that gossip and judge and all that kind of stuff. But you don't have to keep it a secret because there is something so powerful in confession, not just for yourself, but for the rest of the community. When we can just come clean and just be honest with one another and we can see our brokenness. All right, let's pull this all together. How do we apply this? There's a lot of ways. Let me just give you one. If you are in discussions with someone who is not interested in the faith, let me just start. We, we didn't talk at all really about that number two response. People who aren't interested at all. They don't want to hear what you have to say. Here's a great quote that speaks to this. Um, this is written by a guy who was a devout Muslim. He became a Christian. He wrote one of the books that we recommend to you. He says this. If I had said to my Christian friend that I didn't want to know if Christianity was true, David wouldn't have pursued the conversations any further. He had long realized that people who wanted to avoid the truth usually succeeded, right? And you might find yourself, don't feel the guilt on your shoulder that you have to convince somebody. You can't. You can't convince anyone of anything. But if someone is open to seeking truth as Nabil was, now here's where this verse, this this scripture that we looked at comes into play. Nabil, the author of this book, is a sincere seeker of truth. And God used his Christian friend David over the course of many years to help him discover things that he didn't know about Islam, about the Quran, about the Bible, about Jesus. And as he and David journeyed together down that path, God began to speak to him in dreams. I wish we had time to to unpack many of the dreams that he had. But let me just tell you about one of these dreams. God sent this dream to uh, Nabil's um, into his sleep and it was so vivid he wrote it down and and there was all this symbolism so he he called up his mom who was a muslim and he called her up and said can you help me interpret those dreams because i know you have a book written by a muslim that that gives the symbolism behind you know all kinds of dream things and so he goes on to share the dream um in the dream nabil had the vantage point of a snake so he began to see himself through the eyes of the snake. And he was perched on a stone pillar. He said, Mom, does the book say anything about that? She said, yes. She said, if a person turns into a snake, they're questioning their religion. He said, what about the stone pillar? She goes, that symbolizes the way a person sees the world is changing very quickly. In his dream, he saw a huge lizard. And the lizard would lie motionless so that the people wouldn't know that the lizard was there. He said, could you look this up? She looked it up. She found that a monitor lizard is a cruel, hidden enemy. Do you know any cruel, hidden enemies the Bible speaks of? Who appears to be very great and fearsome, but if he's challenged, it will fail because of its inability to provide proof. In the dream, there was a young, good-looking boy, and the boy knew that the lizard was a lizard, and he exposed it by stepping on its tail. He said, Mom, does this have anything in the dream book about a young, good-looking boy? She said, well, a young boy is a friend who will help you overcome your enemies. He's going, David, 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 you know. Um, A young boy is also a bearer of good news. And just before this, David had said, let me tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. And a good-looking boy is someone who will provide you with something that you are seeking. Something that will lead you to abundant life. What did Jesus say? I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Well, before the huge lizard could bite the boy, because now the the lizard's going to try to attack um, the the boy, who would be Nabil. Uh, Oh, no, that boy. Before he could attack the boy, the boy pulled out a huge cricket. And the huge cricket challenged the lizard to a fight. So he's like, Mom, what is a a cricket? She goes, I can't find cricket, but I can find locusts. 
And a locust is a mighty warrior. A mighty warrior. Jesus, book of Revelation, mighty warrior. Anyway, this, this, this thing gets unpacked in more detail than we have time for. Before they hung up, mom said this. This is a direct quote out of the book. She says, I don't know what dream you had, but the symbols are all related. I think this was a dream from Allah. Okay. <laughs> is God at work at this point in Nabil's life? Does God go before us? Yeah. He's got David in his life who's teaching him about Christianity, who's, who's formed this real sincere friendship, who's helping him to understand some things that were and weren't true. You've got God speaking to him through dreams directly. God is even using his Muslim mom and a book by an ancient Muslim author to, to, to confirm these things. Now, here's where we come in. Oh, I got one more thing before we come in. One more thing is this, the Bible. The Bible. Nabil had never really turned to the Bible except to kind of criticize it or to look at it more kind of academically. Now he, he tried this. Take a look. This is a direct quote from the book. At a, ter- at a key point in his life, he goes, I went straight to the bookcase and retrieved my old Quran and my study Bible. I sat down on the couch and I opened the Quran first. I flipped through the pages looking for verses of comfort. There was nothing there for me. The Quran depicted a God of conditional concern one who would not love me if I did not perform to my utmost in pleasing him, one who seemed to take joy in sending his enemies into the hellfire. It did not speak to the broken nature of man, let alone directly to the broken man in need of God's love. It was a book of laws written for the seventh century. Looking for a living word. I put the Quran down. I picked up the Bible. Remember, these are the words not of a Christian uh, at the time. This is the words of a sincere, devout Muslim. He said, I picked up the Bible. I had never read the Bible for personal guidance before. I did not even know where to start. It was as if, and then I have a dot, 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 because he read some verses that were right, seemed right for him. He said, it was as if God had written these words in the Bible 2,000 years prior, specifically with me in mind. Has anyone ever had that happen before? Hands. Anyone ever had that? Come put them up so people can see. Look at this. Is, is it the living word of God? It is. It's still alive today. It is not ancient documents. It's still alive today. He goes, Tears flowed from my eyes once more, but now they were tears of joy. I knew that what was in my hands was life itself. This was truly God's word. It was as if I was meeting him for the first time. I began pouring over the Bible, absorbing every word as if it were water for my part soul. A soul that had never before drunk from the fountain of life. Okay, now here's our part. If God was doing all of this in the life of one of your Muslim friends, coworkers, one of your skeptical friends, atheist, agnostic, whatever... If, if God was doing these kind of things in the life of your friends, can you imagine what would happen if you invited them into an authentically Christian community where they could see people trying their best by the grace of God to live this out? If they saw this instead of the blatant hypocrisy that they see everywhere, imagine the difference that could make. So here's the last thing we have in your notes to write down, and then we're going to close with a song. At Emmanuel, we invite people to experience God with us. If we can't extend this invitation with sincerity, we should pack it up and call it quits and go to a church that's committed to that. This is who we're trying to become, to sincerely be able to say, we are broken, fallen people, and we invite you to come with us as we try to become more like Jesus. And here's some sub-things I put under that. 
we have a hunger here for holiness. We want to have reverence for God. We, we want to treat him with the utmost respect and to try to live out his commands. Our brokenness binds many of us. You know, those of you who've had those hard conversations, brother, sister, I am sorry. We have that brokenness that binds us. If you're in a small group or you're sharing, I, this is how I fell short this week. It can bind us together instead of isolating, hiding it, right? Casting stones when it comes up. It can bind us. We're trying to become a place where forgiveness flows from the forgiven. And we're like, we are the ones who've been forgiven much. How can we not extend forgiveness to those who sin against us? And where more people are, through the power of the Holy Spirit, becoming more like Christ, who did this perfectly. How many of you know somebody who could benefit from a community like that? That's what we're pursuing. And we're going to close with a song. So this time when I asked the worship band to come up, I was talking with Jason about the service and we're like, well, what if we closed with this song? What? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh, you may just get convicted, Rick, during this song, man. I love the lyrics. Let me quickly give them to you if you're not familiar with the song called Good Father. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you are. The people that have cast stones at the scripture and just like, oh, he's this God of hate and whatever. But I've heard that tender whisper of love in the dead of night. And you tell me that you're pleased. You see all my sin, but you're pleased. And I'm never alone. The second verse says, I've seen so many searching for answers far and wide, but I know that they're all searching for answers that only you provide because you know just what I need before you say a word. The more I look at these passages and dive into them, the ones that I just look at on the surface and go, what do you do with this? The more I see, yep, he's perfect in all his ways. He knows what he's doing. So with that humility, would you please stand? Let me pray over us and then let's sing this song together. Father, you are perfect in all of your ways. You are good. Even when it seems like you are harsh, when it even appears as though you might be acting in a cruel way, you are perfect in all of your ways. It is us who are imperfect. It is us who don't understand. It is us who fall short of the glory of God. Lord, we pray that you would descend upon us. Maybe some for the first time could cry out to you as Father as we join our voices in honoring you for the Father that you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.